Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, episode 35, coming home to yourself and coming back to life. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. Welcome back, loyal listeners, and welcome for the first time for you newbies here. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, how are you? I'm really well. Good. You're looking very grounded. Uh, yeah, I'm feeling honestly kind of like somebody else a little bit, so lots to talk about. Good. Um, for those of you who didn't tune in the last time, uh, episode 34, uh, Mindfulness, Mindlessness, and You uh, was a bit of a uh, interesting conversation. Michael, do you want to try to give a recap of that? Well, it was uh, mostly a philosophical thing around um, being aware of your state of being. So we could be mindful in the sense of what Eckhart Tolle and Thich Nhat Hanh and Pema Chodron have to say about being present. Uh, we could also be mindful in the sense of, you know, I guess I'm thinking of the Far Side cartoon where there's the dog and the guy sitting at the sunset and the dog's Image, imaging a dog and a guy at a sunset and the sunset guy is imaging 500 tax problems or something like that. <laughs> so, you know, we can be mindful, but in a way that's kind of like um, stuck or, you know, we're stuffing the, the mind just to keep it distracted or in a place of overwhelm. And then there's the idea of mindlessness, which again, you know, if you're in a state of meditation and you're, you know, uh, in a place of no mind or mindless, uh, that's considered a positive attribute because, um, you know, if you want to, uh, I guess, appreciate what's really going on, the only way you're going to have room to appreciate is to have room, which is to have more space in the mind. And then there's the idea of being mindless in the sense of uh, what we would call entheogenic uh, medicines or psychotropic medicines or things that really mess with your head <laughs> mm-hmm. in a sense of uh, traditional indigenous plant medicines like... Um, say peyote or huachuma ayahuasca or uh, ibogaine or iboga, which is something I'll get into very shortly after we recorded that episode, which uh, <laughs> was a... Uh, <laughs> and I think that's what brings us to today's episode too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, before we get into the uh, uh, the wandering wanderings of your mind while on <laughs> ibogaine, do you want to tell people um, exactly what it is? Give them a clearer picture. For sure. So uh, iboga or iboga, it's uh, the inner bark of a tree, um, the iboga tree, uh, from that part of Africa, specifically around Gabon. I think it's the sort of southwestern part of Africa. And they've been using this bark for, you know, countless millennia as a rite of passage uh, for young men and women. And interestingly enough, also, uh, it's one of its more common uses is for a couple, husband and wife, um, or any other kind of couple. If they're going through some kind of difficulty in consensus and communication, they're each basically given a dose and told to go and really have a, co- a good conversation. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> this, this stuff changes profoundly how it is you um, go into inquiry, inquiry with yourself or with anyone else. And uh, we'll probably have to get into that layer by layer. But it, uh, it, essentially, it's something you take. It tastes like tree bark, <laughs> uh, although a lot of... Uh, Doesn't come in mint flavor? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, sorry. 
we'll get to the puking in a minute. <laughs> anyway, so you take the stuff and they also extract it into capsules to make it easier for you because once you're in the throes of what this stuff does to you, um, I can't imagine actually trying to literally choke back a tablespoon of bark powder and everything else. Um, but once you're um, um, in the embrace of what whatever chemistry is in the that bark, you're in for 30 to 46 hours of hold on tight, and actually you have to let go or it's going to tear you to pieces somewhere in between those two. Hmm. Well, when you said that uh, it would be interesting for couples to uh, enjoy this uh, concoction or decoction or whatever kind of uh, medicine it is, um, the word reality pill uh, came to mind. Uh, and I was I was going to say facetiously that that's what it is, but it almost sounds like that's what it is. It sort of wipes away all of the layers of um, story. And more poignantly, and, and I can't wait to unravel this to make this point as poignantly as I'm going to hopefully do over and over again. That's absolutely what this is. But it doesn't just wipe away the stories. Um, it shows you exactly why you put them there and what they're doing for you and what uh, they will continue to do for you. But you have to relinquish kind of what I guess the mutual ownership is between, you know, those stories and those things we keep on our egoic resume to, I don't know, flog people who get us at an impatient moment or something. So I think that covers that. But <laughs> mm, Wow. So um, I know you've got a list of notes there. Is there any one place that you want to start with this? Absolutely. So um, context is everything. You know, when you're talking to anyone around shamanism, there's what we call set and setting and intention and, and things like that. I have to say that the people who facilitated this uh, and the way that this is done is so profoundly different than any other shamanic or ceremonial thing that I've done. But it's really like, um, it's really hard to like just come up with a sentence that describes how uniquely weird and kind of campy and goofy, but perfect it all really was. But the place that I think it makes the most sense to start in the sense of context is why would we have as indigenous cultures ceremonies that can totally whack you out for 30 to 40 hours, make you puke your guts out and, you know, take some steel wool to the inside of your ego in a really big way. Well, I guess that seems kind of obvious now, but... Um, you're, you're saying that it's obvious from the other side. I, I, I'm still on this side of the table, remember? So fill me in. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. So, um, in the culture, my grandmother comes from the Dene people. Uh, there's an old ceremony called the Ashile ceremony, which would translate in a way to a kind of a frenzy ceremony because of the sort of the context of that word. But because that ceremony has been done for so long, which I'm going to have to explain bit by bit. Um, it's often referred to now as a coming home ceremony. So if we can imagine uh, some native people living in this part of the world, and it was about 900 years ago that the weather shifted a bit, and in our culture it's basically always going to be about ice ages. It's why that you know nation of people lives between two giant mountain ranges because they remember this really old history of giant you know floods and ice you know messing with your scene so a few bad winters in a row and they all started heading down south um so this is people from you know mountains of british columbia to now basically to the high plateau of arizona clubbing the hopi people over the head and literally the hopi people call us clubs us on the head we were in a hurry. So so imagine that you, I guess, the listener, and you, Anthony, and for me, for fun, 
Um, you know, you've been wandering for countless, countless generations. Your whole memory of the world uh, is migratory. In fact, the word we have in our language for that world is which means floating on a sea of topography, mm. you know, in the sense of the land, you know, mountains and valleys and plateaus and stuff. So here's this migratory people with no memory of being landlocked, suddenly bumping into the Spanish coming up from, you know, South America, Central America, and all these other tribes being displaced because of people coming in from the East Coast and, and stuff. So this is 300 years ago, and all of a sudden there's all these people who now have to live in what we call Hokan, which is like a log cabin, a cabin that's got eight sides. And inevitably, the young people from whatever genetic, you know, Neanderthal kind of urgency can't just hang out and raise sheep and prune peach trees or whatever. So they tend to go off and make a whole pile of trouble for themselves because these, these are, you know, your heroic paleo warrior people. You know, we all paleo diets are going, yeah, these people really had great lives. It's like, yeah, I don't think they were good at sitting still though, based on this, or this history and this, 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 uh, they might have had great short lives. Uh, well, some of them probably had pretty short lives, but so here, here's basically the, the story behind that ceremony. So you go off when you're 18, you cause a whole bunch of trouble, bad reputation. You probably got a cu couple of kids in every other tribe around you, and you eventually come home. And the story is that you must have eaten a deer's liver that had eaten the wrong kind of toxic mushrooms, and you've been under the influence of this toxic deer poison for 20 years, and mea culpa about all the broken hearts and tribal infrastructural details of sorry about bob <laughs> you know or whatever uh, but we bring these people home and then we make them throw up in an overnight ceremony called the yoshile ceremony and it's to move that frenzy out of them so that they can come home to our community and you know after probably a couple of years of everyone watching bob out of the corner of their eyes now he's a you know trusted honored community member again and that's been going on for enough generations that that in the Dene culture, Navajo culture, is uh, whereas it wasn't until the Christians basically outlawed the, that ceremony, uh, that was a big part of the culture, which is, oh, so Uncle Bob's back. You know, I think he's going to stay this time, and uh, we'll see if we can clean him off and get that deer poison out of him, and then maybe he'll stick around. And so just to be clear, the idea of deer poison is... I mean, that's a, an analogy people were using to describe the characteristics of Bob because he was just wandering... Uh, fella well this is a beautiful thing and it drives all of my scientist friends bonkers and i kind of have to go because i just love those moments too but the power of say we would say in statistics between correlation and causation is huge so if you can actually have dead rats and statistics and double blind studies saying this causes that you know your black belt of how, how scientific thinking works and then we have correlation which is you know we see enough consistent you know people who eat this way have this uh, positive or this negative so we can correlate it but no one's killed bunnies and rats sorry that sounds cynical but I'm trying to make a point and then we have what i would call associative reasoning which you know doesn't even bother with the attempts to make a statistical correlative statement it just says uh, well, the east has got to do with this color and this animal and this other thing so we're just going to say that's what that means now you know, and that's that's where a lot of associative things happen in, say, Chinese medicine and indigenous cultures. So the context, uh, in the sense of associative reasoning, is people can get really, really kind of wound up in their behavior because of a profound dissatisfaction or perhaps a profound reaction. You know, I think of the Ashila ceremony and these young people 
maybe feeling a profound dissatisfaction because their instincts is to wander and to to track and trap and learn and you know feel the world as you know this this I don't know constant ally and lover and sometimes challenging mentor and um, you know then I think of the the reactionary side of people in that part of the world when all of a sudden you're dealing with people with te technically in context you know superior alien technology I mean these people have guns and horses and carriages and trains and ah you know so in the sense of uh, my experience with uh, Iboga it occurred to me it was very much um, in the context and the experience and the result of the Aishile ceremony. So that's why I thought I'd bring it up because mm. I think most people in life are dissatisfied in some ways, especially if they're listening to podcasts to try and get a better sense of themselves, you know, or their, their life is stressful enough or their inner world is, you know, with enough turmoil that it's keeping them, you know, chronically ill. Mm -hmm. So we're all reaching out for how can I work with this dissatisfaction and, I mean, I don't want to bring up statistics because they just seem, I don't know, oppressive in this context, but how many women are molested? How many children are profoundly mistreated or abandoned, you know, even in their own house with their parents, you know, in, in the same room or just next door? So there's this whole dissatisfaction reaction to life, you know, that until we get underneath of how we've dealt with that part of it, we're just that part of it, you know, we're the dissatisfied self, we're the reactive self. Hmm. So the um, the idea of taking something like this—I mean, you're, you're talking about this as a this is an opportunity that you decided to consciously uh, go in there and sort of scratch the surface, and then just keep scratching to see what's under the surface. Uh, and you're saying that that is um, a long-standing tradition in uh, in uh, you know indigenous cultures here in North America. Uh, well, we're using different plants, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in the Dene culture, it wasn't usually so much around the hallucinogens. It was about the emetics, uh, which means making people puke. Um, and I'll get into the gory details, FYI, for listeners with kids. Uh, at some point, it's going to get pretty uh, raw. But um, you do, in most of these uh, trans states and, you know, with or without psychotropics you do have the experience of throwing up physical objects of solidified emotion and, and things of your past and i mean i've been in ceremonies where i'm watching people throw up stuff that's not my stuff i'm just watching their bodies eject their stuff into their bucket and then you kind of mostly crawl over and take a look and you're like dude you just puked up a frog and it's right there and they're like i know <laughs> <laughs> wow and, and and um north american culture Canadian culture is we're Canadians. I mean, that's not something that we're wont to do. You know, we, we don't necessarily go and look in the mirror and say, hey, how are you doing today? You know, I think we do, though, but we do it in, and I'm sorry, this is, I, one thing about Iboga is you are no able, you're longer able to edit your honesty. So I'm probably going to sound a bit pushy. <sighs> I should get a sign around my neck. <laughs> Editing deck broken. <laughs> How many people drink to throw up because it's an initiation to that relationship with alcohol in Canada? Uh, I know I didn't. Um, I mean, alcohol, alcohol and I just never got along. Um, so I rarely, rarely drink. Yeah. So I'm bringing that up because I've had that experience as a younger person. I really don't like feeling drunk. It's just, bleh. yeah. you know, I don't mind having a, you know, a nice little buzz with friends or whatever sometimes, but feeling chemically paralyzed is just not 
for me an adaptive really woohoo moment. <laughs> yeah. But I can remember as a child, as maybe a person in university, drinking and getting to that point where you know you're just now on this, you know, ridiculous train crash of self destruction because that's what your peer group seems to, you know, want to go into. And the experience I have it would be the exact opposite. Is instead of throwing up with intention a solidified emotional trauma, I'm throwing up and stuffing myself back into myself to prove that I can be as cavalier and irresponsible or just, you know, um, call it edge play, if you will, with a drug like alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying my somatic experience was, you know, look, mom, I'm a grown up now. I can damage myself this much, but the part of me that's me needs to be tamped down to make this make any sense at all. Mm. Well, I, I think alcohol is a pretty um, crappy drug in and of itself um, in the way it affects us. And I don't know. I mean, as you're saying that, it just brings up stories of uh, kids that I knew uh, going to the bush parties and that sort of thing when I was a kid. Um, buying things like peppermint or peach schnapps because it would taste better on the way up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I mean, just... Oh, God, that's really harsh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I never went there and uh, just because it never made any sense to me. Right. And uh, I suppose on some level, um, I was a lot more comfortable with who I was as a kid um, just because of the experiences I had. Um, you know, that, that, that's a story for another podcast. But mm -hmm. the, the life that I lived as a kid was totally different than the other... Um, you know, everyday normal, I'm mean, using air quotes around normal kids that, that live their lives and uh, chose to uh, experiment with alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you did bring up the kind of where did this come from thing. And I guess I just wanted to speak to, I guess, just that thing with the somatization around puking and stuff. But the origin story of uh, Iboga goes like this. And they're, they're guessing 10, 20,000 years ago. Um, this couple that are, you know, doing their migratory thing. Um, the husband, for whatever reason, isn't feeling well. He goes to sleep and the woman is left checking her trap lines. And in those traditional cultures, men have men circle things and women have women circle things, just like in my culture and, and that. And I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I'm just saying traditional cultures appreciate the, those distinctions in a way. Uh, but because he's fallen asleep, she has to go and check his trap line. So she does, and she finds this porcupine, and he's still asleep. So she comes home and skins it and cooks it and eats it and leaves him for some for when he wakes up. And she goes on this crazy freak show of a you know journey, which having never been on before was kind of like more like um, I guess a kaleidoscope nightmare in the sense of oh my god, what's happening to my mind? I'm probably going to die. So she comes out of it with some really interesting insight and appreciation, but also a lot of terror because what just happened? Mm -hmm. So she tells the elders and her husband and stuff. So they follow her tracks and go and find what the porcupine was eating. And they all start experimenting with each other in this bark. And it's described like this. And then it, it, you feel like I just wasted that minute of your life. It's important for context. So <laughs> um, it's described as if uh, in the old uh, stories as if a big bark scroll unravels in front of you in which the paintings move around and dance. Because hmm. what happens in the modern context is when the medicine comes on and I remember sitting bolt upright after being lying on this mattress on the floor feeling like, I don't know, the victim of people with really weird chemical darts going, <laughs> and you're going, oh, <laughs> I fall and can't get up. I remember sitting upright and having like a Star Trek 
screen pop up in front of my head, which is what they say you're going to see. And you can literally move your past, your future, your thoughts and stuff around the screen just the way you would in some kind of like, you know, action movie. And I'll get into this whole other process in a bit, but I just want to give people that sense that people will see this as an active moving screen in the context of your revolutionary period of time. If it's a scroll of bark and paintings, that's how you're going to see it. They didn't have Star Trek back then, right? Back, back then, uh, the idea of a holographic, you know, <laughs> you know, cool computer interactive screen, not so much. So, and this is actually the pygmy people of that part of Africa. And over time, they say that the, they developed this understanding that the medicine wants us to ask it questions. So now when you go into the ceremony, and this is for thousands of years, you don't take the medicine until you've decided what it is you're there to ask, which for me is such a really potent thing after spending 15 years or so, you know, working with other indigenous healers and ceremonies where your job is to go in there with an intention. So, okay. Um, what's the difference between having an intention or setting a, or asking questions? And okay. Two questions here. Um, you set questions. Um, are there certain types of questions that you're, that you're encouraged to ask? And then maybe before that, What's the difference between question and intention? Well, I've been, from my experience, and maybe I'm, um, yeah, I guess I'm just thinking maybe I've, I've missed something in this, just so I'm putting that out there in case people say they kind of seem like the same thing. For me, they seem really quite different because with an intention, uh, let's say there's, uh, with uh, psychotropic, you know, opportunities, even just standard meditation, you're asking uh or returning to the opportunity of moving consciousness through a membrane. Membrane might be your patience or your, your depth of, you know, willingness to see what the real truth of you is. Uh, obviously with something like uh, ayahuasca, which is in, in the top three scariest hallucinogens on the planet. I mean, when you go through that membrane, it's, you know, boom, you know, and with uh, Ibogaine, it's 30 odd hours of boom, 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 boom. So it's, pretty thorough. So with intentions, you know, the idea is to go into that membrane and pass through it and have an expectation of what happens next. Hmm. You know, in the sense of if I can finally, I don't know if it's quit abusing Percocet or whatever people are going into a ceremony for, that's your intention and that's the expectation of a result. And that's a part that might, you might call that the masculine way of being things or the feminine. I'm just trying to put it in context so intention might be um i I've, I've got friends here in nelson who've done ayahuasca uh, quit smoking or um stop drinking so just a sort of general kind of um uh, vehicle that you're driving into the experience right yeah so not saying they're completely opposite i'm just saying from my experience as a person uh, going into an ayahuasca ceremony with the intention of, say, quitting drinking, again, is all going to be about what, what I go through and experience that changes me for the result of not drinking. Hmm. Whereas I think with Ibogaine, I would go into that and say, you know, grandfather, why is it that I'm still drinking? You know, because it's really about going into that deep inquiry. Because interestingly, ayahuasca is so much more about the big picture of life and death you know, and can you truly come into your whole self with respect to your life and your death? Iboga is so much more about can you come into your life as a completely present, honest participant in life, as your whole self, but in life. So this uh, tradition comes from what's called the Bwiti tradition, and Bwiti just means the study of life. Mm -hmm. And then that, that was the funniest part about going to this uh 
with this group of people because I'm used to the shamans kind of having a certain amount of uh, what you might call ceremonial um, participation and responsibility in the sense of uh, like they're putting on a bit of a show because I know I've when I've been training to learn those things it always feels like I'm putting on a bit of a show which is really I mean okay and obviously those formalities serve what they do but these people had like almost no formalities at all and at first I was a bit put off because I wasn't sure how to fit into it, which in a way I think was great for me because I was, like anyone, terrified and looking for any kind of control. So how do I fit in? <laughs> which is going to be a huge theme about this conversation, honestly. And uh, the fact that they had it set up in a way where it was never about that. And uh, with the Bwiti tradition, they are very, very special. Uh, skeptical of religion or of people who you know have a phd or presume to know presume that a belief is you know gonna ever go beyond one person's scope of experience so they're and then i wouldn't i would call them a cynical group of people but a very very happy present group of people because they will never ever employ pretense because it's just so exhausting <laughs> hmm. wow and and getting back to the idea of the questions so um, oh, yeah, thanks. You, you really need to, um, with the idea of doing uh, iboga, you really need to look at yourself and say, um, sorry, one would need, really need to look at oneself and say, um, I want to do this. This isn't something that you just sort of casually say, hey, what are you doing this weekend, man? <laughs> I mean, this, this, this for you must have been like, um, I picture a wall and I picture you up against the wall and I picture your life pushing you up against the wall saying you either go through this or you just stay here all kind of squishy and uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that that actually feels more like an ayahuasca thing. Okay. A boga would take that person up against that wall and assuming you're willing to really sit down with your particular version of that screen. What Iboga did for me and, and pretty much every other person I've talked to who really won't talk to you about their experience until you've done it, like they might give you some offhand stuff and I'm going to do my best to give people more than some offhand stuff, but I get why a lot of people who have been through the Iboga ceremonial experience say I, I, it's different for everybody and that's absolutely true. It's different for everybody, but everybody that I went through that experience with had definitely some very core similar complete rewrites of, of how you even make the inquiry about who you are. So uh, instead of being up against the wall feeling kind of squishy and I hope I make it, although that's definitely a motivating you know trajectory or beginning to the whole thing, what Iboga does is it just walks you directly through, literally by the scruff of the neck. And it's definitely a very, very potent masculine being it's not like oh you know i'd like to maybe sit down with you and negotiate for your attention and possibly throw down some it's like no take your little ppis and take a good look at yourself <laughs> in this moment right here and ask yourself why were you doing that hmm. and it just kept going over and over and over again into all the different shenanigans and stories and things that I have tried to be in my life that had to do with I was trying to be that. So this is going to get a bit personal, folks. So I don't think it's going to use any big scary words, but it might be contextually a little uncomfortable for youngins. So FYI. So something that I think we're all aware of, at least on a rational level, is that children who experience a profound amount of really, really horrible physical and mental and emotional trauma have very little or no self-worth. 
I mean, I think I could have written that, you know, a month ago saying, yeah, and that psychologically sounds like a pretty important thing to say with words. But to be sitting in the depth of that, and it took me probably three hours to finally realize that that was the point. Because I was like, this medicine's a jerk. I mean, it's, it's pushing me into this kind of relentless onslaught of memories and stuff. And honestly, Anthony, there was stuff happened to me that I didn't know after even a dozen ayahuasca things, which, believe me, as we get through this, it's I'm not asking for anyone's pity at all. <laughs> it's not about that. Anyway, so um, I moved to the city at 10, and that was a big shift for me from living in the bush, trapping, tracking, and, you know, no radio or TV, to, oh my god, I've got to figure out traffic like shopping malls and social dynamics of a large city, which was also pretty traumatic. And I got into a lot of fights just because of the racial stuff and got into martial arts. And I'm not saying this to be tough. I'm saying that what became an interesting thing for me to observe, you know, just a few weeks ago um, was the complete and profound commitment that I made probably at the age of 12, 13, 14, when I started to realize I was pretty good at scrapping, you know, for whatever reason, um, that that was going to be who I was going to be for people. So that was it. I mean, I trained all the time. As soon as I was moving to another part of the country, I consciously or unconsciously found a person who trained six hours a day. And that's all we did for a better part of a decade was just train. Hmm. And you'd meet me at a party and I was that annoying, super fit, irritating guy who only talks about martial arts and Taoism and Buddhism and, you know, what's right and wrong in the world and, you know, spiritual warriorship. And it was cool. But at the same time, I was forcing it. And I think most people at that trajectory probably are too. You know, when I think back to most of the martial artists I've trained, and that's a few hundred people, um, my compassion was always there, but it was always under under the shadow of the fact that I was that guy too. Like I could recognize consciously half of the people I'm training are more are just egoically terrified men and women who are trying to find some way to seem intimidating enough in the world to at least be able to hide from their fear of ever having to really deal with, say, physical violence or themselves. That became like this really big kind of journey is, you know, dunking my head in the, the self-loathing of my childhood and then walking me through all of the different masks that I've worn and taken 100% seriously. Like, not only did I get to be a Chinese doctor through this really weird oral tradition, which was kind of sketchy in a way. But I ran with that and started a school of Chinese medicine and taught for seven or eight years, and I still teach now. I mean, that's, I'm not saying that's not normal. It's just not what most people do with their education in Chinese medicine. I, I decided if I'm going to be the Chinese medicine guy, I kind of have to get to the top of you know Apollo. So I started this the most... Uh, prestigious school in this part of the country it was the first five-year school ever and we taught them Chinese so <laughs> we weren't like legit let's smoke a joint and talk about G it was like let's design you know Oxford mm. you know and I'm not bragging I'm laughing at myself at how I have spent every calorie of my being to try and make sure that people saw me as worthy in whatever way I could fit in and I could feel sad about that but it was beautiful. I mean, terrifying, exhausting, but beautiful. I mean, this is what most people are doing most of the time. Hmm. So I'm going to have, so here's the screen and, um, you're talking to this screen and I puked every 40 minutes for 30 hours straight. Was there that much in you? 
Oh boy. <clears throat> yeah. So I mean, I'm, my mind is still thinking <clears throat> physical guck coming out, right? But yeah, I'm going to walk you through it. Okay. So again, FYI, people, this is where my ears may or may not be uh, the best thing to be. I don't know, sip it on your smoothie or something. Put down, put down that guacamole. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, again, there's the screen and there, there's the inquiry and the voice. So I'm sitting there still in the room with everybody lying on mats because we want to be safe because, I mean, this stuff can kill you. Um, we'll have to come back to the, the order I'd planned on talking about this, which is, you know, sort of day one, two, three kind of thing, but we'll come back to that. So anyway, I'm sitting there looking at this screen and I'm trying to get this voice to talk to me because from everything I've talked to people, and this is before I really had any clue what was going on, uh, but every time I talked to people before I got into the ceremony was, yeah, well, you sit down with this list of questions and you ask the questions and this voice pops into your head and it just tells you what's going on. And it turns out to be, that's really you, but it sounds like the voice of God because it has this profound uh, knowing and wisdom and clarity and complete lack of BS and a surgical ability to just cut through whatever you try and protect yourself with, with compassion, but at the same time, kind of like a little bit of a slap, kind of like, stop it. Anyway, so for the first three hours, um, I was kind of stuck with trying to get this voice to work with me because for some reason, I think, I was kind of in this playful, giddy place because I just knew on some empathic, intuitive level that this was it. Like this was so strong, and I was, I was, I was in the right place because it was going to annihilate me. And I know that might sound whack, but it's at a certain point, that's that's what all you got left is tear me to pieces so I can pick up what's left on my on my terms, you know. So I was like, okay, big smile, bring it on. I'm ready to get my ass kicked. And the problem is, is when you think you're ready, it. You're, you're still negotiating, right? So I'm trying to find a way to get this voice to work on my terms. And eventually, I don't know, I just got bored. And one of the people came around and sort of, what's going on? And I told them what's going on. And they said, oh, I'll oh, take this. <laughs> and they stuffed this horse capsule more of the... And that's actually usually what happens every three or four hours until you're completely, you know, uh, out of the stratosphere or whatever. Right. They just keep nudging you. So I was like, oh, okay. So then more puking and more nausea and more lying down. And then I, you know, I started with hallucinations. It's, you know, you're moving through the past, the future, things that have happened, things that are really symbolic and, and all of that. And I know this is going to be a really weird aside. And for those of you who are going, this is, sounds like a long podcast, uh, probably. Yep. <laughs> Um, I really have to just share with people how this whole works because it's for the beauty of it. So this is going to seem like I'm going way off, but so I like audiobooks, and I've been listening to this series of audiobooks called Expedition Force by a guy named Craig Allenson. And the guy who does the voiceover, the voice acting is just top notch. His name's RC Bray. And I'm just giving these guys names out for cred because I love these people now. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so I've been living, listening to this thing, and it's all about this artificial intelligence that, for whatever reason, is in the shape of a beer can who participates in humans' attempt to save itself from multiple more advanced races. It doesn't matter. It's not about science fiction. It's about the fact that this AI can basically help these people move through wormholes and adjust space time and stuff like that to give them a fighting chance because we're basically monkeys and everybody else is super high-tech aliens, right? And he actually calls us monkeys. And he's a, I'm going to say a slightly bad word, but the character's name is Skippy and he's a complete asshole. Like mm. he's just this arrogant, annoying voice coming out of a beer can that has magic powers in terms of how science fiction would run with that. So I was deep into these books before the ceremony and I'm in this 
pit of nausea trying to figure out how to get this voice to work. And then finally just pops into my head that after the hallucinations of pinging around the inside of my spatial mind, this is kind of like Skippy. It would be like talking to him. So I sat up again and said, hey, Skippy, what should I do about why I can't sleep? And he started talking to me in the voice of the voice actor who does these novels. So, <laughs> well, welcome to the fluidity of the mind and, and how... I think some instinctual part of ourselves finds comfort any way it can before you completely get annihilated. So there I was happily sitting there chatting with my <clears throat> arrogant AI beer can Skippy <laughs> as the voice of Iboga. <laughs> and eventually they moved me into a room because I was cogent enough, but also quite happily blathering on with my invisible friend. <laughs> uh, and I talked to that being, and uh, obviously that's some part of my subconscious self about everything that's ever happened and everything I've ever done. And it was exactly what I had heard people tell me about, but until you're in it, you, it's different for everybody, what it means, what part of it means the most, uh, who knows, but. And so, so sorry, when you say talk, uh, talking out loud or just inside yourself? Or? Just inside yourself. I okay. mean, some, sometimes, and uh, I'll bring this up. So this was about hour 26 of relentless every 40 minutes vomiting and they kept bringing me stuff so I'd have something to throw up because they, they know better. They've been doing this for like a decade in Africa. These people are like experts. They're EMTs. They're emergency room nurses, just in case you almost die. And I'll tell you the story about how I almost died. <laughs> so <laughs> and I try to appreciate this. If you've never been under that kind of, you know, driven vomit fest and hallucination and, you know, clearing out your karma. I, I described it to Skippy about halfway through. Dude. I'm like the karma eating machine. He's like, you go for it. <laughs> anyway, so about 26 hours in, I'm starting to get the feeling that, you know, I've got, I've got to go looking for whatever it is that's still in there. Cause most people are done the harsh puking after like 10 hours. So, um, I'm just like going, okay, Skippy or Iboga or however this really needs to work. I mean, I'm bring it on and the puking starts to go all over the place. And now I'm really starting to see some really deep, hard emotional stuff popping out of myself and you can kind of see it and you know it's not literally happening in the sense of you know i don't know <laughs> the x-files or something like that look we've got pure proof um but at a certain point i was like i think i'm gonna actually hurt myself because i'm physically like it physically feels like i'm gonna throw up my liver because hmm. i was like going for it and at a certain point i just was and i'm sorry uh i will not say the word I said, but imagine you're sitting on the side of this bed, puking into a bucket and you're doing your best to try and figure out the best physical position to be in to hurl the most out of your guts. And it's mostly bile now hmm. and I'm going for it. And this is beautiful. I mean, as a human being, imagine the courage it takes to just say, yes, I will go as deep as I can into this. So there I am, but I'm getting tired <laughs> and I haven't eaten anything in a couple of days. I'm like, Oh, so I basically told Skippy to screw off. I just need a minute to catch up. What did Skippy say? I threw up while I was breathing in. He didn't like that at all. <laughs> so I aspirated a whole bunch of bile and stomach acid, uh, fell to the floor because I couldn't breathe because of the trachea swole up. And um, so I'm crawling around the hallway trying to like still puke into the bucket because I don't want to be a jerk and puke on this people's floor, <laughs> but trying to like wave down the attendant guy but i got my breath back and i sat down and i was like whoa that was really intense okay note to self never piss off skippy again <laughs> so i'm basically sitting like a ragdoll in this hallway going like oh okay and then i decided to get up and go back to bed because clearly it's not done with me and i better chill out 
Uh, and this again, isn't in the order that I'd probably plan, but one thing that was a thematic joke throughout my whole journey was you're not supposed to move very much. Sorry, during the ceremony? During or the ceremony. From, from, well, no, from the moment you take the medicine to the moment you're completely cured of the medicine three or four days later, they just say, try and move really, really slowly. And I was, you know, and I admit with PTSD, when you're triggered, you're in a very hypervigilant state. And I'm not trying to sound tough, but I'm 40 years into being a martial artist. So no matter what they tried to do, no matter how I understood exactly what they're trying to say, no matter how I tried to move like Tai Chi, I moved like I was in the middle of a fight the entire time. If I sat up, I sat up like I was Jason Bourne coming out of a coffin. It was crazy because hmm. I was in this hyper, <laughs> like hyper vigilant state. So I was sitting on the floor in the living room or in this hallway, uh, and I decided to go back to bed. And instead of like crawling up and graciously, you know, sloshing my vomit bucket back to my bedroom, I jump off the floor and ta-da, because I'm feeling all full of you know, pee and vinegar or whatever. And then I end up puking way, way harder because I'm, I think at the, at the end of, I don't know, fighting this <laughs> at all. Cause I, it was, that was it. And then I'm puking some more and then I aspirated some more bile because I was panicking about the fact that I probably, I'm probably going to breathe this stuff in. And of course you end up breathing this stuff in. And then I'm running down the hall with my hands waving down in the air as I crawl up the stairs to get the EMT to come because I'm afraid I'm going to need a tracheotomy because I can't breathe right now. So they, they sort me out and I didn't have to have a tracheotomy, but if you would have talked to me within the first 10 days of me coming back, I said, oh, like this because I had totally digested my trachea. <laughs> <clears throat> That's pretty gross. A little bit, uh, I guess. But I mean, part of me is just trying to find the, um, the way of describing this that's just a little bit kind of like silly about the whole thing because it was the most serious thing that's ever happened in my life. So as all of this, uh, you know, we've been rattling on here, sorry, you've been rattling on here about how it is that you physically endured this whole thing. Um, do you want to get into what you actually were um, going through or like your sort of emotional process or what your thought process was? I mean, certainly you could talk for probably for hours about what it was like to sit there and how creatively it was that you could throw up. <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, it would be interesting, but I'm more curious because you've talked about that. You've alluded to it. That there's, there's, uh, there's layers of the onion, as you said, that got peeled back here. Um, are you okay to get into all that? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing me back to the <laughs> most, most useful version of this conversation. But Thank you for bringing the listener back to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I'll just put this in context and then bring it to where we need to go. So the easiest way to put this um, one human to another, and I'm not saying this again for anyone to think um, good, bad, or anything about me. I'm sharing this because I really, really think it might be a good mirror for almost anyone I've ever met. Okay. So sure, my life might have been a little bit more black and white around how people get to see themselves. But what I can say with as much clarity as I can is that I spent my entire life trying as hard as I could to be anybody else than me. Say that again. You spent your life trying as hard as I could, like literally as hard as I could to be anybody else than me. So just based on the things you were talking about earlier, when you were deep into the whole idea of martial arts, 
that was something other than you? Well, I mean, that was me trying to make sure other people could see me as someone they'd never want to fight or someone eventually who had, um, well, in a martial arts, say, seminar, who would gain a certain amount of respect because of the number of black belts or the number of fights or the number of styles or the different masters I trained with or all that. And I love martial arts. I'm not saying I was faking the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I just became aware of a profound underlying painful engine that was a participant, what we call the shapeshifter, uh, and me trying out that experiment of me. And then there's the Chinese doctor me, the Taoist priest me, the native guy, the wilderness survivalist, the emergency preparedness, the... Podcaster. Podcaster. (laughs) I mean, whatever it is that I've tried to excel at, I've done it because I was interested in that. And I thought it would be a good thing because I'm a pretty quick learner, you know, if I can learn things and help people, I could. But I didn't really realize up until the ceremony that I was doing it kind of like, a, you know, a little a dance with masks. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, I, I came up with, because I wanted to talk about voice dialoguing at some point, obviously not this one. <laughs> um, it's a really good idea to give intentional operating kind of parts of yourself a name or at least an attribute so that you understand what they're doing. And I just started calling that part of myself the shape shape shifter because that's kind of a part of indigenous culture. And it can be a bit of a demon, but it can also be a bit of a teacher. So I just started thanking my shapeshifter for making me a martial arts expert and a Qigong expert and a person who spent that much time meditating and all these things. And I can, with empathy and humor, accept that I push myself into those things with a bit of a pointy stick, you know, in the sense of in reaction to a lack of, you know, normal self-worth. And now I'm sitting here um, aware that that whole thing around having or not having self-worth, around having or not having to overcompensate around social bonding and ego and how to fit in. Um, the only thing that's ever going to set you free is you. Right? And the only way you're ever going to get to be you is to stop trying to be anyone else but you. And I find it really interesting that without planning or rehearsing or even thinking about it, the last thing I said on the last podcast before I knew I was going to go into this ceremony with no idea what was going to happen was this question. Do you know who you are? Do you care? And if you don't, are you going to do something about it? And I had no idea that that was the point of the ceremony. Hmm. So intuition was there. The you know, indigenous people say that once you ask these medicines, are talking to you. That's the message. <clears throat> and I can say completely clear without any pretense for the first time in my life, and I'm coming up on 50 years old, I'm actually me now without any need for a resume or... Uh, a mask or, or any of those things. And mm-hmm. it has mostly to do, and I guess the, the real not-so-subtle point is, what you identify with is what you get. And would you say that what you've been identifying with up until this point has been um, misguided? I'll give you an example. So here I am. It's getting close to the end of my time with the screen and the voice and my beer can friend Skippy is the voice of my inner wise voice, which I'm still laughing about because, hey, it's a beer can. It's funny. <laughs> you got to read those books. They're great. Uh, anyway, so I'm at the screen and it's getting close to the end and I decide that I wanted to recapitulate or go deeper into this bad thing that happened when I was around six. So, and at the bottom of the screen, it looks like, you know, what you would see is like a time bar if you were, I don't know, recording or editing video, like okay. in the sense of it's like a time timeline. 
And my mind kind of goes back and I'm like, okay, I want to know, you know, how about, you know, maybe the details are too personal, but uh, about this, you know, and Skippy, I'm waiting for the answer. And my attention kind of zooms through space towards that part of the stream and I bash into an invisible wall. Meaning you couldn't see that? And then the voice of Skippy, my friend, which is apparently my true voice, turns out I'm a bit of a jerk inside my head, <laughs> funny way. Uh, says, you no longer need to identify with anything that happened before you before you were 10, and the entire timeline of my life is blank before 10. Hmm. And I was kind of frustrated. I'm like, but Skippy, or but Iboga, sorry if you're a serious you know, Iboga enthusiast and find it annoying that I give it a nickname, but it was working for me. So if you've been through Iboga, you know that doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Um, I was a bit frustrated because I really wanted to make sure I'd cleaned that up or I was really clear on that. But I was also left with a really strong impression from that voice, which is you no longer need to identify with those things that happened to you. So I sat back and realized the problem was that I was actually the one identifying with my trauma, which identified me as an worthless insect that should be squished under boots. I mean, you can't do that to people that are, you know, shouldn't just like rub it out. I mean, why else would you do that, right? So you're left with that impression of things. And then there's all these overcompensating versions of me that I had just identified with. Hmm. So the trick was, what happens when I stop identifying with anything? And then boom, and near the end of the ceremony, I realize I am Skippy. Hmm. In the sense of, I am the voice of Iboga in me. I am the voice of truth within my life. And I can be heart-centered, which has been my ethos or religion or go-to only real um, response to life, but I was identifying with the guy who thought that was a good idea instead of just doing it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to catch up to the ideas here. If if this is um, a sort of an awakening or coming into yourself, um, how are you feeling based on, sorry, do you have feelings of anything? based on how it is you've showed up up until this point? You know, and that's been the, the hardest part of the last three weeks, and that's why I really had to go deep into a relationship with a part of us I call a shape changer, because, I mean, even uh, naturally as a human being, I, you know, a week ago I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be going back on the podcast with Anthony, I'm going to be talking about having my entire onion, you know, basically, you know, Diced. boom, <laughs> layer by layer. <laughs> Um, you know, what are people going to think of me? What's that thing going to think of me? You know, am I going to come off sounding like some religious zealot? I have no idea because I'm something, you know, it's, uh, this is a different planet for me you now in, in every way. And all I can say is, ha, 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 good, good trick for folks to try and get me to identify with my ego because, ha, not going to work. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I'm not allowed, and I'm not saying this like some rock stars who's got entitled to the blue friggin' Smarties or something, but <laughs> if I'm not allowed to be completely myself, warts and all, why am I doing this? Hmm. Hmm. And I'm not saying let's all have a pity party for Mike. I'm just saying if you listening to this can't be your broken, beautiful self, how could you possibly start to pick yourself up? Because until you fall down in all your beautiful pieces, you're just trying to keep it together. And that's exhausting. Hmm. The, um, uh, okay, so here, here's my opportunity to go off on a tangent. The uh, bumper sticker that comes to mind, there's no such thing as a way. 
right? Like when you, it, it's it's uh, usually used in the environmental kind of sense, right? Like whenever you throw something away, it's not really away. It's just sitting somewhere else. There's no such thing as a way. And when you talk about um, all of the reflection you've had on your life and how does you show up now, it's like, well, you can't throw anything away. It's still there. So um, it's what you do with it. I, I would just say, as you listen to this, please don't allow what Anthony's saying to leave you feeling powerless about what you do with how you identify with yourself. And I'm not saying Anthony just tried to like cast a black magic spell on you, but that way of thinking is the black magic spell, which is, oh yeah, well, you're still stuck with your past. And it's like, no, I'm stuck with what I identify with about my past. Well, and that's what I was going to say, that it, it's um, it's how you deal with whatever it is you have. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm not a... Iboga astronaut, as you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I still have that sense of myself with things that have happened in my life. Maybe not to the depth or understanding that you have based on your your, your trip or your experience. Mm -hmm. um, but somewhere I have a gratitude for all the, uh, all the things that I haven't been able to throw away. Me too. Right? Yeah, it's just it doesn't have to be about the wounded side no. and, I, I, and i'm just want to be clear man i'm not saying that you or everybody else needs to do a boga to change how they identify with their selves their past their life their future i'm just saying you know if you're a person who is into meditation or shamanic dance or primal screaming make it about what you're identifying with and see if you can uh take the hooks out a little because mm -hmm. it's still you i mean i can't not have those memories they just don't hurt anymore because that's that's not that's not how I have to look at myself in the world. I mean, it's funny. I've been working with people in trauma and addiction forever in a sense of, you know, being a clinician and stuff. And I've always used this metaphor of being mauled by a bear because that's kind of in traditional culture. What people do is they say, Oh no, Billy got mauled by the bad bear. Let's go and put him through a ceremony that helps him decide to never become the bad bear himself. Because mm -hmm. on on reserve, it's seventy five percent of people experience incest. So, you know, job one is let's make sure that doesn't happen in fifteen years, right? Right. So this whole idea being you know mauled by a bear. So um, when we identify with that as you know some wound that we're carrying and the scars are visible and everyone's thinking about us because of the scars. That's what I mean by the, I guess, the over-identification because you can say, man, that made me stronger. It's given me so much more compassion for other people. It's a great teacher, you know, and it's, you know, humbling as anything. Then it's positive all the way around. But if it makes you want to hide from your life and from other people and from intimacy, um, the mauling is still happening and you're the one doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can, I can say that for myself with um, crap that I went through when I was a teen in my early teens and uh the curiosity i have around why that actually happened and um my ability to stand up and talk to people uh and speak in public on a podcast or broadcast on radio or mm -hmm. a group of a hundred or a thousand people doesn't bother me mm -hmm. because of that so um that lesson was just a lesson it wasn't good or bad it was just the thing that actually taught me how to do this um and i've always had that sort of sense of I don't know if it's control or not, but it's almost like a, um, uh, 
like when you first learn how to drive, you know, you're sitting bolt upright, you're not slouching, you got both hands, you know, one at 10 o'clock and one at two o'clock, you're actually driving in a, in a responsible um, manner, as opposed to just sort of slouching with your arm hanging out the window and, you know, the dog on your lap and <laughs> <laughs> your cell phone stuck to your other ear. Or, the dog's or, actually steering. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, I, I, I don't know if that kind of makes sense or not, but I, I get what you're saying about how... Um, uh, going through this iboga uh, washing machine has sort of given you this different appreciation for all the different things um, that make you yourself. And it it, it sounds like your, um, your 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 feet still aren't on the ground yet with this whole experience. Yeah, I, I get that. That's going to be the perception of people for a very long time because I'm not going to play that game anymore, no matter what. Hmm. I, I mean, none of us need to have either a resume or a clipboard or a bullseye painted to ourselves to make our interactions with other people work better. Right. You can just be you. So the name of the podcast is Coming Back to Yourself. So, And I did this, I think, two or three podcasts ago, but I'm going to do it again. If you identify with yourself as a broken self, yourself can never heal itself. Because a broken self cannot heal itself. Right. And that's from the, like a, the Taoist tradition, which says that, that only true conscious awareness can embrace and over time accept a broken self as a self. Hmm. So coming back to yourself isn't coming back to the part of you that still needs a story. It's, it's coming back to the part of you that actually breathes, that actually smiles without um, pretense, that... Um, is completely and profoundly honest with everything that you do, think, and say, because anything else is just such, such an insult to the opposite. Mm -hmm. I mean, this stuff is the truth serum from the ninth dimension or whatever, if you allow it to be. It's uh, so the week before I got there, uh, they had put nine people who were uh, hardcore committed decades in heroin addicts. Sorry, to be clear, uh, the week before you did this iboga ceremony? The people who ran the ceremony ran a ceremony for nine people who were completely hardcore life over heroin addicts. Right, uh, okay, and so... Seven of those people will never use heroin again. Wow. One of those people is still trying to figure out why they decided to go back to play with street drugs and the other person died because they overdosed on fentanyl. After. Yeah. Oh, wow. But seven out of nine people within the space of a week completely said, that's not me. That's not, it's not interesting anymore. You know, because, I mean, it's funny that uh, in indigenous tradition and Taoism, you know, we always talk about autonomy, you know, as the kind of the be-all and end-all of our goal as spiritual practitioners. And not only that, but honoring and celebrating and meeting the autonomy of others. You know, because if I, I expect you to honor mine, I guess that kind of implies I should honor yours. Which brings up this ethic of non-interference, which, I mean, I've been thinking about since I read the Tao Te Ching the first time at 17. Like, wow, what does that really mean? Why is that this big deal? And it's the same in all these other traditions too. And, you know, what's, what's what does that mean? And now I really get it. Hmm. You know, you got to stop interfering with yourself to really see what interference looks like. And then you can stop interfering with how other people are interfering with themselves and just accept that that's where they're at and maybe be good at poking them in a way that makes them 
more satisfied with themselves and less reactive with the world. Just so we can keep loosening up, because I think we all need the the shapeshifter to keep making those masks for us until it's time to put them down and pat that puppy on the head and say, good job, and go play. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> it's funny you use the word poking, uh, you know, telling people, poking at people um, in a caring way. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're sitting in your office here and there's a bench of acupuncture needles <laughs> over there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, there's some sort of um, connection there, I think. The I, I, uh, I'm having... I'm trying to have like a, an epiphany with chills, but this room is so hot, it's kind of just going the other way. <laughs> yeah. It's probably about 90 degrees in here today. Um, yeah, I mean, as much as you're um, as old as you are and you've come to this place in your life because of all the different experiences, this most recent one with Ibogaine, um, it sounds like the authentic you has been there all the time. And then there's just been this kind of um, shape-shifting mask changing um, approach to it right like somewhere the, the 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 true aspect of who you are as i see you is somebody who is um who has i mean if you use this analogy before you've got a lot of gas mm -hmm. you got a lot of give a shit for for people right um to the nth degree um to the point where you actually want to sit down and geek out and nerd out on podcasts and teach people what it is you know just because you're compelled to do that and um It'll be interesting to see how you show up from here forward, you know, to, to, to see if, if, if you're going to be more of that, you know, maybe we'll need another microphone beside you there because you won't be able to sit still and, and just talking to the one. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It might seem like I'm being a bit big hair. I'm just trying to make a big point. Hmm. You know, obviously I totally agree. I mean, we all need the shapeshifter. We all need those egoic, you know, journeys off of the medicine wheel to come back with some wisdom and some experience and compassion for others. So I'm not, again, making some black and white thing, which I'm pushing all those egoic masks off the shelf. You know, they suck. Uh, you can't believe I was that stupid. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, like I, I think I said 20 minutes ago or so, I love myself for making those choices. I mean, I could have been like a hardcore street addict. Most of the people I grew up with, Anthony, are dead and they died in prison. Wow. You know, like, um, yeah, there's one guy who didn't end up in prison and not dead. Everybody else is dead. Most of them in prison. You know, so, so it's, it's like, I mean, I don't know why I brought that up, but, um, anyway, yeah, I'm not trying to get rid of those parts of myself. Those are parts of who I, you know, those are the different pushups I've done to try and figure out who I was. And now I've had a chance to realize that I don't have to identify with them to be okay. I just need to accept that those are really interesting adventures as a self. Mm -hmm. And there's no egoic uh, luta, you know, money, there's no cashola, there's no trade, there's no one can come in and say that doesn't belong or that doesn't have value because I don't value th those misadventures any more than me. I just realized that I was kind of squirming a little bit as I was going through all that stuff. You know, and I appreciate that so much more as a person with myself, but so much more with other people. You know, and, and honestly, I couldn't, I mean, maybe I'm throwing a dare out there to the universe and me in the future and whatever, but being at peace with myself, which I think is what I actually asked for on the last podcast without knowing what I Boga was really about, I've found that. And I don't think there's anything that's ever going to knock that out of, out of my scope because I've been, I think I've been working on that my entire life. I just didn't really get that it was supposed to be comfortable because <laughs> I was so busy trying most of the time that this whole, well, you're, you're good now and you just, 
be you, be your spine, be your bones. I'm like, what, what, what else? But what else? <laughs> and now I'm like, yeah, got it. Thanks. The car's going to go 60 miles an hour, regardless of how hard you <laughs> grab onto the steering wheel, <laughs> Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and again, I guess I'm wanting just to reiterate that because I really, really, really want anyone who hears this to say, wow, maybe, maybe I am overcompensating and, and maybe I don't need to. And maybe, you know, it'd be fun to find out what the difference would look like, hmm. how to get there. So where do you want to, are we done? Like, are, are we sort of near the end of what you wanted to share today? I'm, I'm curious how you want to, um, uh, leave this for the, the listener. If, if Well, I think what I'd want to do, and then I would, would have. I plan on doing this in the first like 10 minutes, but, uh, for anyone who's listening to this and you feel like you kind of got the message, see ya, have a great day. <laughs> if you're a person who's kind of like, I want to know a little bit more about how this works. I'm just going to walk you very, very quickly through how this works. <clears throat> so there's a lot of different places, um, where I boga is legal. Canada is one of them, Costa Rica, a few other places, obviously Africa, I think everything's illegal in the States, but you could probably f still find an iboga house where, uh, they're willing to get spanked or whatever but usually it's going to be two or three days usually it's going to be you know one two three four five thousand dollars because it, it takes an entire staff of people to make this work there's going to be emts there's going to be uh, other people with you know pre-ambulance surgical staff in case you need a tracheotomy or something you need to get a whole bunch of medical tests done before you go into the ceremony i had to get an ecg and some blood work and everything else and and stuff to make sure that i was not going to die because this stuff is strong enough and if you get caught up in the wrong bioelectric corner you could basically stop your heart so i mean it's probably safer than plane travel but it's just you know it, it's uh a bit expensive because it's days in a row and these people have to take care of you and you need to pay the entire support staff to keep the whole thing going. Um, with respect to the experience, you're going to show up and you're going to have a bit of a debrief with the, the clinical people and with the people who are, we're going to call the shamans, which again, in this tradition, the idea of some superficial hat that makes you anything more than you is going to make them all pee themselves laughing because this is the study of life as a self, as life. And that's why I wanted to call the podcast coming back to yourself and coming back to life because when you're yourself you're just life you don't need a name it's you know eh. anyway so day one you get to talk to the medical staff the shaman and other people who are running it so you know what's going on and they also want to get a sense of basically how compressed your scene is if you're just coming off of heroin and you know you are a street prostitute for 20 years or something they're probably going to want to have more people keeping an eye on you than if you're I don't know, an accountant who's just curious. <clears throat> Although right. I'm not saying either one of them, you know, <laughs> not, not, not profiling, I'm just trying to make a point. <laughs> it gives the staff a sense of kind of how to, you know, um, be mindful for people. And then you do this thing called a river bath, which is such a beautiful little mini ceremony. So, you know, because we're up on the side of a mountain here in the beautiful Kootenays, uh, we took turns standing in a creek and thank those beautiful people so much for using some warm water to do this because the creek water was freezing cold. Uh, so they basically do this little prayer thing and then you get to wash yourself with some moss out of the creek and then they use these special medicinal plants to wash you off. But as they're doing it, they're asking you to bring up the name of all these different people in your life that mean different things. And your job is to wash them off of you and let them float down the river of the past. And when you leave, you're not allowed to look back because if you look back, you're cursed. 
Interesting. So you wash yourself off. And I, I tell you, man, I get goosebumps every time I talk to people about this because I had to walk up this sort of sketchy hill and grab my clothes and get dressed <laughs> and kind of find myself back to the uh, place we were staying up this sort of sketchy hill without any way taking my eyes off like this tree. <laughs> so I had no chance to look back because me knowing me, I thought, yeah, I'll probably look back. I'm just, you know, <laughs> just, I want to know what happened. So you want to make sure they're gone. <laughs> yeah, whatever. So I just focused on the tree and crawled out of the thing and grabbed my shorts. Uh, but a lot of people who, who've had that experience, uh, and I would say that's true for myself. If I ever feel like I need to go and get right with stuff, I'm just going to go give myself a river bath, let it all go down to the river of the past, let it all go and move on as me, whatever that is. I wonder if you could do that in the shower. I think you could do that. With all the sweat that's pouring off us right now, because we're in this really hot, <laughs> hot room, <laughs> a sweat bath. Anyway, so I just wanted to get people that kind of a thing. And then after you're done the 30, 40 hours of hallucinations and deep, 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 beautiful self-work and uh, um, the screen and the, the voice, uh, there's going to be a closing ceremony. And, you know, we're all at that point trying to figure out how much or if food is a good idea to try and... Uh, keeping your gullet and you're still having like uh, little visual tracers and stuff you know it takes like another day before i think driving would be a really good idea um but in the closing ceremonies you know it's it's really just people who've seen this happen maybe a thousand times to welcome you to the the new world and i'm gonna have to share a quick story in a sec to make that make sense uh and then we all just speak about our experience and what it meant to us and and all of that uh so that's usually how these ceremonies ceremonies go but I need to share one little poignant moment because it, it really ties something together. So I'm at the end of my 30 hours of puking, but I'm still puking and people are getting concerned now because this is, you know, usually that's when this is done. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I feel like I'm done. But uh. So uh, one of the really beautiful people that was there to help out, this uh, elder woman who actually is on the board of the Iboga Council of Europe, She's, she went. She flew off the next day to go to Switzerland to an international meeting on how this important this plant is. Wow. Anyway, she's coming to take care of me in this bed, and she asked me if I want this special rice stuff that the, the shaman can make. And I'm like, uh, I usually don't eat grains, but okay. And she's like, well, do you want it or not? And I says, well, if he went through the trouble to make it for me, I want him to feel good about that, so I'll, I'll drink it. And she's just looking at me with this big, funny smile. And she says, so you get it, eh? And I'm like, huh? And she says, well, you get that this is a team sport now. And I'm like, yeah, uh, that's right. And for the rest, I mean, since then right now, I, I want to write a book called Humanity's Future is a Team Sport. Because, <laughs> I mean, everyone after that whole thing, even in the closing ceremony, no matter what was going on, it was just like, you know, oh, wow, that's really awesome. That's making you feel good. Oh, can I do something to help you feel good, too? And, you know, you just suddenly become empathically aware and really, really patient and encouraging for people to just feel more satisfaction, less reaction, you know. Hmm. That sounds kind of beautiful. Yeah, definitely. You know, so, uh, no, I have not drank the Kool-Aid. I'm not proselytizing that everyone on the planet should go to Africa or... God, please don't order some weird crap offline and choke it back and hope for the best. Please do this only in a ceremony that have people who've literally spent, you know, five, ten years working on it because, you know, clearly not fun. But um, I do feel like I'm proselytizing Anthony because I really want to <laughs> help people out with this. Go deep. Stay true. It's not that hard. Hmm. I think that's a great place to leave it. Okay. Yeah. Um, you've been listening to uh, Michael Proselytize, <laughs> <laughs> Michael Smith. Uh, Damn. <laughs> Fusion Health Radio is the name of this podcast. I'm Anthony Santa. 
uh, we get together every now and again and we cook in Michael's very warm uh, office here in Nelson, BC. The air conditioning too loud for the mics, guys. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We're <laughs> suffering for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, uh, if you like what you hear uh, and you know somebody who would be curious to hear it, please share it with them. You are our marketing budget. <laughs> That's the. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. This episode is brought to you by Iboga Soul. <laughs> oh man, that was embarrassing. Uh, or Iboga Wellness, uh, Wellness in Costa Rica. So Iboga Soul is uh, on the west coast of British Columbia. They're the people I did the ceremony with. Check them out online. I think it's ibogasoul.com. And they're uh, tribal brothers, both initiated by the same teacher in Africa. I have a center in Costa Rica called Iboga Wellness. Uh, a friend of mine went there. It's obviously more expensive than it would be to do it in a you know, retreat center here. Uh, but if you have the resources and would rather be in a small light container, that would be an amazing place to go. So obviously I'm not saying go do this without medical supervision, some really deep inquiry or, or even give me a call and make sure you're sure. But, um, if we're going to have sponsors right now, those are the people I want everyone to be aware of because they're saving lives faster than anything else I could possibly imagine. Wow. Great. Ibogasoul.com you say? Yep. Or on Facebook? Uh, sure. uh, yeah, they're on, I believe they're on Facebook too, yeah. Yeah. Who isn't? <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump. Um, cool. Wow. Uh, so again, folks uh, listening, um, share with your friends. And uh, you can see us on Facebook. Look for Fusion Health Radio there. Uh, look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, any place you actually get your uh, podcast fix. Uh, please leave us a comment. Uh, we'd like to hear your comments. Uh, Facebook is the best way to follow up with Michael to get in touch with him. Uh, when you see this post there, feel free to ask questions. Um, again, this has been Fusion Health Radio, episode 34, 5. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's really hot in here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really warm. And I'm going to make sure I get this right. Episode 35, coming home to yourself and coming back to life. I'm just so caught up with whatever you're saying. I don't care what the title is Me anymore. <laughs> It's really hard to get attached to anything right now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.